I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. While much of Dr. Cornelia Polyak's breast cancer research exists in the smallest of environments, the world of human molecules, she certainly has not taken on the smallest of goals. Her goal, simply, is to understand the role the immune system plays in the evolution of breast tumors. And that's why, as you'll hear, her lab is dedicated to the molecular analysis of human breast cancer. Dr. Polyak's breakthrough and interdisciplinary breast cancer research has ranged from exploring new prevention techniques to addressing late-stage metastasis to better understanding treatment resistance. And while neither her goals nor her impact is small, she's been singularly focused on science since she was small, remarkably finding and growing her love for the field since she was a child. More background. Dr. Poliak is an internationally recognized leader of the breast cancer research field. She's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, principal faculty at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and co-leader of Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center's Cancer Cell Biology Program. She's earned numerous awards, including the American Association for Cancer Research Outstanding Investigator Award for Breast Cancer Research, as well as the National Cancer Institute's Outstanding Investigator Award. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2008. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Cornelia Polyak. Dr. Polyak, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, and thanks for everyone for joining us today. Yes, I'm, I'm grateful to the listeners as well. Let's start at what must be the very basic um, for somebody who wants to understand you and the work that you do and have done. What does it mean to be dedicated to the molecular analysis of human breast cancer? Um, what it means that we... Very simplistically, we basically want to understand why women get breast cancer, why some progress to advance and um, treatment-resistant disease, and what can we do about it? You know, though I always, um, I've always been a very rational um, person, and I want to understand what's causing the problem, and because I feel like that's the way um, we can solve it. So I really want to know the molecular basis of how cancer starts, how does it progress, why are they not responding to treatment, and then um, how can we um, prevent the process and also treat patients better. And that last part of what you just said is one of the areas that I wanted to ask you about. How do you think about preventing breast cancer as opposed to treating breast cancer? Well, we all know that the biggest impact uh, of any disease um, to reduce mortality and morbidity would be to prevent the disease. I mean, you know, we always advocating that for uh, if we can, we can prevent it. Um, so in a way, we all know that it would be ideally would be best not to have breast cancer. And when people tell me that that way I would not have a job, I tell them I'm very happy to do something else with my <laughs> life. But anyway, so... 
so prevention has the biggest impact because then, you know, if we don't have breast cancer, we don't have to worry about, you know, um, progressing and treating and we would save a lot of people's lives. And also we would, um, you know, reduce the, uh, or the morbidity associated with it. So that would be the ideal goal, um, with breast cancer. Um, but of course it's, um, you know, not, not so easy to achieve that goal. So it's a very challenging area from the, um, uh, scientific point of view and also from the medical point of view to try to apply any prevention strategies because it has to be very safe. Mm. Um, it has to be applied to the right person at the right time. And we know that, for example, breast cancer risk uh, may be determined in your young adulthood, maybe even during puberty. So it's not easy to you know, um, decide when would be the best to apply that treatment or prevention strategy and how, and then also how we can identify people who are really the high risk of breast cancer. Um, the second best option for um, having an impact on morbidity and mortality is early detection, because the earlier we diagnose a cancer, um, the more likely uh, we have it in a you know stage when it hasn't spread and more likely to respond um, to treatment. Um, so breast cancer, I would say, is actually one of the cancer types where we know um, we have examples for prevention. I mean, we know that, you know, for example, the high-risk women can have mastectomy, which is not ideal, but at least we know that that can reduce the risk. And then also we have screening strategies for, um, you know, the mammograms as much as they imperfect but it's still a screening strategy. And um, we diagnose people at early stage disease and that can uh, has the biggest impact on improving uh, mortality. So I think those are the two areas that I'm really, you know, passionate about, but it doesn't mean that we don't care about people who, you know, already have advanced stage cancer, but ideally we would like to reduce the number of those patients um, by, you know, having prevention and earlier diagnosis at, at larger uh, numbers. So let's talk about molecules. Mm -hmm. What is immune escape? Immune escape basically means that, you know, we have our immune system that's um, working to protect us from many diseases, a lot of infectious diseases, but at the same time, also ensuring that, you know, um, we don't have, um, we don't get cancer. So if you think about it, um, despite the fact that breast cancer, or other cancers are um, fairly common, you know, um, but it's not, it's very, still pretty rare if you think about how many cells in our body mm. we have and also how long we live. It's very rare for somebody to have multiple different cancers uh, in any, you know, in a lifetime. Um, so our immune system is one of the most effective um, defense against infectious diseases, but at the same time also against cancer. And we think that many early cancers are actually um, eliminated by the immune system or they don't become symptomatic. Um, and But then cancers escape from this, what we call immune surveillance, which is basically like the immune system tries to recognize what doesn't belong to your body, what is, looks abnormal and eliminated. And then cancers, as they um, grow or progress, they 
figure out a way how to overcome this immune defense. And that's what we call immune escape. Um, so we and others have shown that um, as the tumors progress, we see a decline in the active immune cells in the tissue, suggesting that somehow um, either the cancer cells kind of not recognized properly, or they figure out a way how to suppress the immune cells in a way that they cannot be attacked and eliminated. So that's what the immune escape is. Am I understanding you to say that, in a sense, are there two questions? One is, is it that the white blood cells are not able, or the immune system is not able to sufficiently address the underlying cancer or precancerous cells? Or is it that somehow those underlying precancerous cells, and please you'll correct me, you know, the parts that I'm getting wrong on this, but that somehow those mm-hmm. cells are able to evade or avoid the, 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 the white blood cells and the, the immune system? Is that, is that one of the questions that you are seeking to address is which side is the problem on? Yep. Is it on the immunization, on the immune system, or is it on the precancerous cell system? Yes. So actually, it can both sides um, are can happen, and both sides is, are happening because, for example, one way the cancer can um, avoid the immune cells or the white blood cells from eliminating it is that it grows in a shielded environment. Like, for example, early stage breast cancer grows within the duct, and for some reason, um, immune cells cannot enter the ducts. So the question is, is it kind of almost like a physical barrier that forms around some of the cancers that makes the tissue too stiff and too kind of um, dense for the immune cells to infiltrate? So that's one thing that can be happening, and we know it's happening in some cases. At the same time, um, the cancer cells can themselves produce suppressors of immune um, cells, for example, this immune checkpoint that probably many of you heard, PDL1, yes. is yeah. one of those immune checkpoint proteins. They they can be produced by the cancer cells. They can be also produced by some kind of uh, white blood cells that are actually promoting cancer. Um, so then the cancer cells can do it directly or indirectly by recruiting more suppressive cells. Um, For example, there are um, different types of macrophages, which are some of those cells that phagocytos, you know, eat like other tissues. So some of those can produce immune suppressive uh, molecules. And also, um, you know, a lot of these stromal uh, tissues that some cancers recruit, again, they can produce a lot of those. So I think it's, we think both of those can happen. Um, the, the, it can even vary in one patient at um, different stages of progression or treatment and also could vary depending on uh, different regions of the same tumor or different lesions in the same patient. So, so that's why it's like kind of so complicated and very, you know, could be very unique at a particular stage to a particular person. Incredibly complicated. How important is it to be able to research the cells in situ, in the place where they originally are, which I know is a core part of your research? I think it's, it's, it's very important because 
spatial location, like where are the cells in the tissue, it's, uh, it's incredible information. So there is a good analogy that I've seen somebody present in a, in a talk that I really like, because um, if you think about it, like, you know, you, you, you eat a meal and somebody gives you a shake and um, you don't know what's in the shake. You know, you try to figure out did you like uh, mix up apples, oranges and so on. <laughs> so you can, there are some molecular tests that could tell you that. Nowadays, we have molecular tests that would tell you every single cell in a tissue, um, you know, uh, what they are. You know, there are these single cell um, just profiling of the, of the tissues, but you need to dissociate it for that. And then there are the set of technologies, one that we have been using and um, really um, believe it's important is that, you know, not just the composition of the of the shake or, you know, like the tissue, but you also know which cell is where, where mm. is the cancer cell? Is the cancer cell next to the immune cell or the white blood cells or what kind of cancer cells are next to each other and what are they doing? Why do you see a particular pattern? So this is a very fascinating area because we have an explosion in technologies in the, you know, like I've been in um, breast cancer research for 20 years and I always feel like every five, 10 years we have such a technological advance that just makes you like, wow, now we can really understand things. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's happening now. We see so many of these very detailed single cell methods, including in situ technologies like, um, you know, we can do sections and see every single cell. We can get full transcriptome, meaning like hundreds of genes expressed in a particular cell. And we know where they are, what is the location, what do they express? And even more, we also um, testing technologies that would give you, preserve the whole 3D architecture of the tissue um, and see you, the cells in a three dimension. There are these technologies now called the clear sheet microscopy. Mm. So there are advances at the molecular front and also the imaging front and the computation because we're using this machine learning and artificial intelligence to have the computer look at these images because honestly, even a very experienced pathologist or, you know, people in the lab, um, we can be biased, you know, we all human, we can be very well-trained humans, but we're still human. We have a certain error rate and we also, we don't recognize patterns. If you have to think about recognizing a pattern that you have thousands of different variables, we're not good at that. You know, we can recognize a couple of colors, but not that, but the computer, we can train them and say like, you know, this pattern comes from a patient that doesn't respond to treatment, can you recognize it in another patient um, and tell us, is this person likely to respond or not? So these, I think the combination of the experimental methods, the co uh, computational methods and the microscopy imaging is all coming together to really allow us to dissect tumors and you know, even healthy tissues at a depth that we've never been able to do before. And tell me, what, what study, what research do you have going on right now that we should know about um, around this area or in a new area that you're maybe uh, that you're pushing forward on? So our lab um, studies um, progression of breast tumors. 
like starting from the very early stages and even some prevention studies. Um, I can just give you snippets of uh, what we're doing. But at the same time, we're also studying the late stage metastatic um, tissues because I feel like, you know, we're studying evolution of the tumor, which goes from start to, you know, uh, late stage um, treatment resistant cases because we want to help everybody. So for example, in our prevention studies, one thing that we're very excited about is we're able to eliminate um, the progenitors, the cells from which cancer would start and eliminate it. And then we can prevent cancer from ever forming. So that's one of the areas we're very excited because I feel like if we would do that in, in, in women, then we don't have to have a mastectomy because we're just eliminating the cells from which the cancer would start out and we have the same effect as having a complete mastectomy. So mm. that's one of the areas we're very excited. The other area that we're very excited about is the, the role of the immune system and the immune escape and how, when does it happen. And we think that it really happens at an early stage, what we call this ductal carcinoma in situ, for the reasons that I, I already kind of highlighted that at that stage, the tumor is still within the duct um, so it hasn't started spreading and it, in a way it's shielded, but once it starts spreading in a body, then if it would not have the immune escape, then it would be likely to be destroyed by the immune cells. And one thing that we have been um, studying that, um, you know, when a tumor starts to develop in the, in the tissue, even when it's a localized tumor, it can have some systemic effects. Um, for example, you can have a breast tumor growing, but your bone marrow cells or your lung stromal cells, you know, supportive tissue cells, somehow getting signals from that cancer that makes them behave differently mm. to be more permissive for cancer growth. So we, in a way, we think that, you know, metastatic process and metastatic development starts uh, much before we can actually see metastatic lesions. And part of it is the, you know, these um, factors that are secreted by the tumor cells in the tumor. And many of those seems to educate the immune system in a way that, you know, don't recognize the cancer cells or allow them to grow at sites they would not be growing. So we're trying to figure out when can we detect it? Can we really detect it very early? And can we, you know, recognize these women at early, even before they have metastatic lesions and somehow interfere with this process in a way that they would never have, um, you know, metastatic lesions that would be, uh, you know, clinically symptomatic. So those are the areas. And then the third one is we focusing on uh, treatment resistant disease. So, you know, breast cancer, um, many women are fortunately responding well to treatment, like particularly uh, hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive disease. Uh, and even in triple negative disease, you know, yes. more than half of patients respond well. But then we still have a large number who don't. And um, we're trying to understand why, why are they are resistant. Is it because of the their tumor is very diverse, meaning like many different types of cancer cells very early on, or or we're studying the tumors as kind of an ecosystem because you know tumor is not just a cancer cells, it's a community of cancer cells 
that form their little environment. And uh, again, I already mentioned that there are these systemic changes occurring in patients um, that all seem to be, you know, supportive of cancer. So we want to understand that. And of course, we also want to have better therapeutic strategies. And we all know that combination therapy is the best because when you have a combination therapy, then you have the lowest likelihood that you have a subpopulation of cancer cells that resist that therapy. But it's not easy to develop these combination therapies because, of course, I could tell you like five, six different drugs that you combine, and then you're likely to kill all the cancer cells. But unfortunately, you're likely to harm the patient also because the more drugs we mix, the side effects and the interactions of the drugs can be more serious. So it's very challenging to develop these combination therapies. So we're using a computational and mathematical modeling uh, approaches and again, studying tumors as an ecosystem to, to develop these combination therapies and um, also figure out what time is the best to apply those early on. Because, you know, many times I feel like um, many of our clinical trials for early agents are done in metastatic disease. Um, which is, you know, it's very uh, late. You know, many yes. therapies may work better if you're doing it earlier. And I know there is a push for, for example, immunotherapy to apply earlier because, you know, it may be more effective. So, so those are the three major areas that we're focusing on. Prevention, why do, do you get cancer? Why, how they progress? How they escape the immune system? And then lastly, the therapies, like how can we have better um, more effective and less toxic therapies. Yeah, you, you are active on the whole spectrum, uh, really from the beginning, pre-beginning stages, it, it sounds like, um, through to the therapies that you just discussed. And as you think about your work in those three stages, um, what frustrates you? What keeps you hopeful? Oh, what frustrates me? Uh, well, um, one of them now, we have a fear about uh, losing the, you're losing the young, talented people. Mm. Um, that kind of not just frustrates me, it kind of scares me because, you know, we need young, talented, smart people uh, in science and medicine to, to make progress because, you know, as much as what we can do, we, we need the next generation. We need to train them. And especially now, um, it's very challenging. You know, I mean, the COVID makes everything is even more challenging, but you know, like, um, it's not easy to do academic research. You know, it's, it's the funding, uh, is not easy. Um, it's many of the studies we do are long-term. So, you know, it's, we're not talking about a year, but many of our projects that we're working on and finally publish a paper, it takes like four or five years. So training for the people is, is, is several years, you know, like, um, the number of jobs for academic faculty is right now very difficult to get. So, so I'm worried about um, having the young generation discouraged um, from getting into science. And, and not to mention that, for example, many of our trainees are from other countries. You know, the U.S. has been um, really taking advantage of providing an outstanding training environment for um, many um, students and even postgraduate trainees from different countries who come here and then um, go back to their, many of them go back to their country. And, and that seems to be now jeopardized somewhat by the 
kind of whole political climate of the U.S. and and the world also in general, mm. and of course COVID right now. So that's one of the challenges, you know, the the training and the you know the next generation. Um, then the COVID now puts a challenge on us on uh, how do we interact and funding. You know, I know many uh, foundations and everybody is losing money. Um, so that's going to be the next few years, not going to be easy to continue and support research, which kind of in a, um, part, uh, you know, even the NCI director said that we just had such a positive impact on cancer. Mortality has been going down and we all fear that this kind of challenging time now because of the COVID situation and the economic turnaround and then people not going for screening and all that, that will, um, change that, uh, meaning like it, we may actually see a increase again in, in cancer mortality. So, so that is the funding and not losing the, um, you know, like the faith in science. Mm. I think we really need to have people realize that science is our future in a way that that's how we solve problems. You know, we, we really need a leadership at every level that supports science and research because um, as much as it may seem like sometimes scientists don't know what they're doing because, you know, I know some people use that with the COVID. We don't know what we're doing. Um, We know, but we need data. You know, anybody who tells me they have an idea and they make a conclusion without data is not a real scientist. So, Mm. So we have to have people who recognize and support science and know how science works. Um, we can do magic. I, I mean, you know, as much as I wish I could, but that's not how what we do. We need data. We need to um, have conclusive data, which means that not everything like anecdotal evidence is not real science. Um, so that's, I think it's, it's a big challenge, I think, for the whole world in terms of like, we need to be supporting science at every level and making sure we're making progress. And um, I would say that those are the two two biggest challenges, the funding, the training, and also for the general public to be supportive of science. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is a, a current topic across a whole number of scientific areas. What about on the hopeful side? What are you seeing from your research that, uh, that keeps you hopeful? We have such a convergence of technological advances, mm. computational advances, and um, you know, very enthusiastic, committed um, group of people who um working together as teams. You know, we, we don't have like individuals now. We have teams you know, we, that includes mathematicians, clinicians, yes, pathologists, yes. research lab. Interdisciplinary. So I think it's interdisciplinary. Like um, I'm just working on one DOD grant, but, you know, our whole research, if you look up our papers, we always have been working with, you know, pathologists, clinicians, um, computational biologists, and epidemiologists. Um, we really have a teamwork, and we are working together. We're talking to each other. First of all, nobody can do everything. And second, it's, um, you know, we, we, that's, a, that's our strength, that we have and people with different expertise that also comes with a different view of um, seeing the problem and asking questions. Uh, so we, I think that the, the technology is the um, integrated nature of science. Those together, I think, gives me hope that 
we will figure this out. And as we close the conversation, uh, you mentioned uh, a moment ago the allure that the U.S. Uh, education system has had over the years for students uh, who have come here internationally. I happen to be talking to one of them. Growing up in Hungary, it's not lost on me. Growing up in Hungary, was it always science for you? Was there a different interest? Did you always know? Maybe you didn't know it was going to be coming to the U.S., but did you always know it was going to be science? Yes. I mean, I have to say I, 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 I was an unusual child, and I have kids now on my you know, I have one child on my own and I see that I, how unusual I was. So I just <laughs> loved science from very early stage. And I, my, my mom could tell you that I, I just love like dissecting things. And I always wanted to understand things. I mean, um, um, very, you know, uh, and I loved reading books and I loved doing, um, experiments, you know, some experiments, uh, even at young age. And uh, my family and also, you know, growing up in Hungary, um, they uh, were very supportive of science and allowing me to extracurricular activities to to uh, do more than mm. the regular curriculum. And um, so I'm very, very thankful for the teachers who always sometimes were frustrating because they said, oh, you know, like you don't deserve an A because you could have done more, uh, which, you know, as a child, you don't always appreciate. But in reality, um, you need people who kind of push you and challenge you to to see the most, you know, what the most you can get out of yourself. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I always kind of uh, uh, was, of course, enthusiastic about science and math. Um, I think in high school is when I really knew I want to do molecular cancer research. And, hmm. you know, this was in the eighties um, when I was in high school yeah. and I started reading books about molecular genetics and um, we had a very supportive high school. It's, it's was somewhat kind of almost like college here. Like I could take major subjects. I finished the biology curriculum early um, my teacher arranged me to go to the clinic, actually the pathology and learn about the tissues and diseases at very early age. And, and, and I kind of felt like this is what I want to do. And then, as you know, in European system, uh, we go to medical school straight from high school. You know, it's different uh, yeah. way it's a training. Yes. So when I when I went to medical school, I, um, so I was 18, but I kind of wanted to do research and experience what research like. So as a medical student, I started working in a, in a research lab. Um, and again, this was in the 80s. So it was still molecular biology was very um, not that developed in the late 80s. But um, I happen to be lucky to work in a Hungarian National Academy lab. Um, there's only one, you know, Hungary is a small country. So there's only one institute and it happened to be right next to my medical school. So they let me work there as a medical student. And that was the time where PCR was discovered, the genes were discovered and, you know, like all these very basic things in the late 80s. Yes. And, and I just, I was fascinated by that. And then I kind of knew that I want to pursue cancer research at the level that um, very few places 
could do in Europe. I mean, Hungary, again, it's a very small country. It's like New York City. Think about it. The whole country is the size of that. So so I could not do that kind of a cancer research. So I, I applied for graduate school and I actually, I was at Cornell Sloan Kettering, so close to you in New York. And um, I happened to have a fascinating and amazing um, graduate training that you can only imagine, um, you know, for a student, because I, um, I worked with Joan Masagi at Sloan Kettering mm. and this discovered P27, which is a inhibitor of cell cycle, cell proliferation. So it was a major discovery. We were in New York times and, you know, and also you, I felt like I'm, I can have an impact. I can actually discover things that will have an impact. So that kind of hooked me staying in research because, you know, I, after medical school training, I did um, do the exams to think about doing residency and fellowship training. And then, and then I just felt like after being in a lab that um, I just feel like this is what I want to do. Uh, but in a way that I work with the clinical people and we work together, but I don't, you know, the only step I don't do is um, not treating the patient. And yes. then the other major impact on my career was training with Bert Vogelstein as a postdoc at Hopkins, who I call the real, the father of cancer genetics, you know, hmm. he's a, and a translational research. So he really kind of taught me that, you know, when you start doing cancer research, you're not, um, you know, and we have a famous quote from his that the ultimate goal of cancer research is figuring out why people get cancer and how we can treat them better, you know, like very loosely like that. So, so that's what he always made us focus is like, you know, yes, you can spend many other things doing things, but cancer research at the end, you have to solve problems and apply them and make people, um, you know, make a difference in the clinic. Um, so those training at both in um, Joanne's lab and, and Bert's lab was really influential in terms of setting up my career and, and doing what I'm doing. And I'm incredibly thankful for the opportunity. I mean, I, I just got an award from Distinguished Alumni Award from Cornell this May, which unfortunately we could not celebrate, but I'm just incredibly thankful for the opportunity um, to allow me to train here and allow me to, you know, pursue a career and do what um, I always dreamt like doing and, and I think, you know, what I see that I see many of the young people now, um, that we don't want to deprive them of that opportunity. And I think it's just such a short sighted, um, view that, you know, I, I, I really feel like, uh, the problems that affect mankind need to be solved by mankind, meaning like we need to work together, not just as a team in the science, but also as a team, as a international level. And um, I think it's really, really, we just gaining a lot more by working together worldwide than, um, than excluding um, people from pursuing um, and contributing to society the best way they can. Well, the, no, no doubt that is true, and and what a terrific story and uh, acknowledgement of some of those uh, uh, folks early in your career that really opened your eyes to to what that feels like. And I can only imagine, and I'm feeling it in listening to you, what that feels like to to have that realization 
wait a minute, I can have an impact here. I, I can I can help human life and help individuals' lives. And it sounds like that was something that uh, you really came across um, early through some opportunities in, in your studies. I, I just want to make sure to clarify one very, very important point, which I, I imagine every listener is going to want to know, which is, so to, to be clear, when your mom said, um, Cornelia, would you like to go uh, play tennis this afternoon or should we go, would you like to go mm -hmm. ski? Your response was, no, mom, I'd really like to go dissect something. Am I understanding you correctly? <laughs> well, yes, and uh, and then uh, I also I, I loved I went to summer camps uh, in uh, math solving math problems the whole day. Hmm. I know my daughter always thinks that I'm I was crazy, but uh, <laughs> no, I was like that. I was uh, very much into discovering uh, things and and you know just challenging my mind and solving problems, and I feel like I'm still doing that. I'm sure that you are, and if your child thinks that you're crazy, then that says to me that only that you're doing you're doing parenting right. Because if the children don't think we're crazy, I think we must be doing something wrong. Um, Dr. Polyak, thank you. Thank you for being just a little bit crazy. Thank you for your uh, dedication to science and uh, to the molecular level, and for the work that you do. Thank you so much, and thanks for listening. That was my conversation with Dr. Cornelia Polyak. My thanks to Dr. Polyak for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.